ride with me in my foul life. What is up, podcast world? The Foul Life back at you. Wildfowl Magazine, 2021 Giant Gear Issue, the Bible of duck and goose hunters, enthusiasts all over Canada and the continental United States. We've been having a good one this year, our second year in a row, running through 10, 11 podcast episodes, concentrating on each section of this awesome magazine put together by my co-host, the one and only Skip Knowles and his crew. They do an unbelievable job every year. 196 pages. The articles are unbelievable. The instructions awesome. And then the product, the gear, the in every section gives duck and goose hunters alike ideas and you know, just kind of recommendations of what's coming out by all the different awesome manufacturers in our space. And it also has a great section on tips and tactics and instruction. And don't forget the ads. I love going through it and just looking at all the new ads, the creative, what these manufacturers and brands are doing to stay ahead of the curb. It's that time of the year where you want to get out there, but the dog days of summer, maybe that's why they call it. You got to keep your dog, just kind of maybe train him for 10, train her for 10, 12 minutes and get them in the cool. We got a guy on the, the podcast today that can educate us on this type of stuff. I know that we are going through this section today, Skip Knowles, retriever accessories, sporting dogs, duck dogs, training collars, kennels, beds, bumpers, dog food. Look at right there. Yukonuba performance. Right there. That is the best you can give to your dog, male or female, young or old. But you go through here, and there's just everything that you want to know what your dog needs, from hiding them in the field, from making sure they're hydrated with new water water accessories and bowls to feed them, the vest, the waterproof vest, the boater vest, so many cool designs to make sure that your dog is safe and secure before the hunt, during the hunt, after the hunt, ointments, gels, nutrition, diet, you name it, Skip and his team have put together. And today we have Mr. Pete Fisher. Y'all have heard him right here on the Foul Life Podcast in the past. He represents the great brands of Dogtra and Yukonuba. Pete's on the podcast today to lay down the authority on what we need to be looking for going into the 2021-2022 duck and goose season. Blue wing teal, early teal is right around the corner. We talked about snakes yesterday in Louisiana, Texas. We talked about the early goose season and mosquitoes and the heat up in Minnesota and North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, everywhere that's going to offer an early goose season. These are things that we have to keep in mind. So we're going to start right there. It's almost September. Pete Fisher, how are you? Please say hello to the audience right here at the Fat Life Podcast and start today, Pete, by talking a little bit about these early season hunts and what we need to do to make sure our dogs are safe against the dreaded cottonmouth snakes of the south, the mosquitoes all over the country during this time of the year, the, the hydration issues when it's this hot outside and we're running our dogs. And then please talk a little bit on the actual birds during dove season, blue wing season. Do we have to worry about things like feathers coming off in their mouths and such as that? How do we keep our dogs safe during the early season? Welcome to the show, Mr. Pete Fisher. I think it's really important that we monitor our dogs and we don't overwork them. Uh, it's always better to err on the side of less work uh, so that we don't get a dog that overheats because many times, if you don't catch it early enough with, with uh, heat stroke, 
Uh, these dogs go shocky on you. And if you don't get them to a vet, you can lose them pretty quick. So those are a, a couple of things that I think are really important of the the handful of things that you mentioned in your in your first uh, barrage of questions there. Yeah, I, I apologize for the barrage. And I had a little technical difficulty. If you don't mind real quick, Pete, you don't have to start over. But I want you to mention that one thing that you said is on the market now that, that we can take care of. We all we're paying attention to heartworm. But what's on the market right now mm-hmm. that we can also make sure that our labs and our, our sporting dogs are taken care of? Well, they, they offer a uh, heartworm preventative uh, traditionally was a every 30 day preventative it was a, a chewable cube and a lot of us still use that uh, i personally use it but but there is a uh, a treatment a preventative that is a once a year that you can uh, can give your dog for people that might have a tendency to forget to give their dog um the heartworm preventative every 30 days and and so that's really important that regardless of what you use for preventative that you that you stick with it because the mosquitoes uh, they're everywhere. I mean, I, I know how many we have up here in Minnesota, even in a in a drought year, and they uh, they breed in, in in wet areas. But even in the middle of a, a drought like we're having, there's still lots of mosquitoes around. So I think it's really important that any dog, but especially a working dog, uh, stays on some form of heartworm preventative. Pete, please educate Skip and myself on um september 1st dove season in most places around the country some limits are 10 some states have a 15 bird limit i don't know if there's a 20 bird limit out there but (laughs) the feathers come off pretty easy on a morning dove this time of year is there do you like to see dogs retrieving dove in a 90 degree dove day or let's say it's 70 degrees because it's usually done early morning most times some guys hunt in the afternoon right. girls mm-hmm. hunt but is is it a good idea and what do you do if you do choose to hunt your dog retrieving doves are you cleaning out their mouth after every retrieve give us some hints on that please pete yeah i, I mean i think that's important uh, you know especially with a young dog but one of the things that I think might be more critical when you're taking a, a dog out dove hunting because of the size of the bird, you know, if you don't have that dog uh, broke on birds, force fetched, delivering nicely to hand, uh, if you're just going to take that dog out and start hunting them early season, Chad, and his first birds he's going to uh, become exposed to are doves, there's a very good chance because of the size, he might stand right there in the field and eat it because it's so small. Now, that's pretty difficult to do to, to eat a whole bird when you're out back hunting or pheasant hunting. But because of the size of that bird, uh, they have that tendency that they want to chew them up if, and, or try and eat them because they are so small. So I think it's, it's cr- really critical that your dog has been through a training program, either by yourself or a professional, that the dog has been what we call force fetch. So he knows how to fetch on command, deliver to hand, regardless whether it's a bumper, bumper with wings or, or a bird. So I think that's really critical. As far as the, the feathers in the mouth, yeah, they do have a tendency to come off uh, and, and kind of get gummy in the dog's mouth. A pheasant is very, uh, feathers are very gummy like that. We don't see that with ducks as much. You know, they're, they're a firmer feather and, a, and skin on the, on the bird itself. So I just clean them out of the dog's mouth if he comes in and, and try not to make a big deal of it. Um, to your other point of uh, uh, hunting the dog in, in hot and warm temperature, Again, you're hunting in the morning typically for doves. So then it's going to be, if there is such a thing in, in the south, a, a cooler time of the day. Uh, up here, we do get, like this morning, it was 58 degrees here in Minnesota, but it's going to get close to 90s in the next couple of days. So you're doing that early morning hunting. You just have to use some common sense. Have fresh water. If you can get the dog into a shaded area, 
and and most of these dogs are going to be okay uh, up until the point where you really start asking them to run and work a lot. And what you have to remember is that a dog cools themselves through exchanging the air in their lungs. They don't sweat like a human being. So the way a human uh, cools himself is they sweat. Uh, the the airflow over the body gives you the evaporation of the sweat and has a tendency to cool you. Dogs don't do that. So the average dog runs at a uh, body temperature, runs at about 101 degrees. And you think uh, think about taking him out in 90 degree temperature. And this dog has to cool himself by exchanging that 90 some degree temperature through his 101 degree uh, body temperature. That makes it very difficult. And that's where you can run into what I mentioned earlier with heat stroke. So we have to be really careful to not overwork the dogs. Stop at the point where before you think the dog's going to be in trouble. And then what happens if if you do get a dog that's overheating? You got to get them cooled off somehow. You got to get some, and don't overcool them either. But you got to get them to a vehicle and air conditioning. If you have some ice to put them on, but again, you got to make sure that you don't go in reverse and chill this dog too much. But really, the best the best thing to do is get them out of the the extreme heat, get them into an air conditioned vehicle or or building, and let them slowly start bringing back their 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 body temperature down. Skip, when you're hunting with one of your dogs during this time of year that Pete's talking about, do you carry a bottle of water? Do you carry a bowl with you? Do you carry a collapsible bowl? Some really cool designs on the market and some in this gear issue of wildfowl. But are you constantly squirting water in the dog's mouth and making sure that they're hydrated during a hunt, Skip? I think you might be on mute, Skip. Sorry, I've been, I was coughing a little. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm very concerned early in the season. Um, it's funny how you just continue to learn and learn and learn when you're in the dog business. As a hunter, you never stop learning. And when you own gun dogs, especially when you have three different departments in the magazine like we do, and I'm reading stuff from Tony Peterson and Tom Dock and every issue editing, it's, uh, it's pretty intimidating how much you have to do to take care of a dog in warmer weather. I used to just take them out and run them until they looked really tired and they laid on their belly. And I'm like, okay, we're good. Give them water. Um, but, but now that I learned that there's so many more signs that you have to watch. And like Pete said, they can, I, I never dreamed that they could really overheat in water. But if you've been spending much time in the South, that top two feet of the water column can be just nasty in the 80s or more. And yeah, it's like putting them in a sauna, actually. So. I always thought just getting them in the water was good enough. And it pretty much is out west here, especially in the higher elevations, but there's just so much to know. I wanted to ask Pete a couple of things. Um, my, you, I laughed when you talked about how their they, labs tend to eat doves if you let them get away with it um, early in the season. Mine doesn't eat them, but she get, gets pretty darn hard mouthed with them. That's a mashed up little mm -hmm. bird a lot of the times. Is there anything you can do in the field to discourage that? And also, I was curious that you said force fetching can reduce uh, hard mouth tendencies or the tendency to stop probably and, and not just bring the bird straight back. Tell me a little bit about how force fetching can fight, you know, dogs being hard mouthed. And uh, I'd like to hear a little about that. Sure, sure. I, I'm you know, the, the, the theory behind force fetch is that, you know, hopefully all these dogs that we're working with as working dogs have some natural desire to retrieve. But, you know, the, the, the natural desire is not always to bring the bird back to us. You know, I always tell people when I'm doing a seminar of some kind, if we left a, a retriever go untrained, many of them are going to do a couple of things when they go out and fetch that bird the first time. They're probably going to stand there and eat it, or they're going to probably take it and go and bury it for, for later, or they might even lay it on it and roll on it. So, 
you know, we want the, the we want to get a dog that has that natural drive to go and, and chase something, but the training comes in and getting bring it back to us. And so we do this procedure called force fetch. And the first step of the force fetch is to teach the dog to hold things in its mouth properly and and uh, and carry it around and deliver to hand. And then the next step, and this is the reason why we call it force fetch, is we use typically many of us have used a light pressure on the dog's ear. And so it's negative reinforcement. And the dog feels this discomfort on his ear, and you pop the dummy in his mouth, and, and, the, and the pressure stops. And through repetition, the dog learns that the way he gets the pressure off the ear is to get this in, a, in their mouth. And so eventually what, what I do and a lot of other trainers do is we use the remote training collar, the e-collar, um, to reinforce this also. So I use light pressure on the dog to get him to fetch it up. Uh, so now when he's out a distance from me and he starts messing with that bird or playing with it or chewing it up, I've got a method to reinforce the command of fetch, give him light stimulation and get him to pick it up and bring it back into me. But we don't do that until the dog does it all close into us. You know, a lot of times people say, geez, that's nice. I see your dog doing that out at 150 yards, but they don't realize that I started at a foot and a half to start with and then five feet and then 15 feet. So the theory behind the force fetch is fetch on command, delivered in hand, is what I've told people over the years. And so when we've got that dog out in the field now, Skip, that, that has a tendency to chew on doves, uh, now I've got a method to tap, tap, tap with the training collar, reinforce, fetch, and then get them to bring it back in. But there's a lot of groundwork we should lay beforehand, and, and, and people might say, well, geez, where do I come up with a bird that's similar to a, to a dove? And if you look around, if you're in any rural area or even some urban areas, you can find barn pigeons pretty easy. And they work pretty well for getting yourself a, a smaller bird to work with. And typically what I would start with is, is when I start introducing birds to a dog, I go with bumpers on wings. Then I go to, to uh, a frozen bird, a killed bird that was frozen. And so the dog treats it more as an object than they do something that's alive and they want to chew on it and kill it. So there's different steps that we go through before we actually get that dog to a point where they're going to retrieve a, a clipped wing or crippled uh, bird for us. So, but we start with that force fetch procedure so that we get a, a real foundation laid down. So we have some tools in place to show the dog what we want. If he does start chewing on a bird out in the field. Excellent. <clears throat> Do you think, I want to go back to the, the beginning. I know I had a barrage of questions. I apologize for that, Pete. I just get so excited because I'm fired up to be with our dogs, <laughs> Axel and Slash and Duff and Waylon and everybody. Um, in the southern part of the United States, we talked to Terry Denman yesterday. We talked to Kyle Broussard down in southern Louisiana with <clears throat> Gator Tail Motors, Terry Denman with Mojo. Lots of water hunts going on for Blue Wing Teal. Do you... Have you been asked about alligators? I know that this has happened. You hear some horror stories. You hear some almost incidents. Would you recommend a southern duck hunter running a dog in any body of water? Is there? I, I don't know if I'm going to walk through that body of water, and I'm probably going to throw my decoys out from the shore and then use an extended pole to get yeah. them myself, right? But it, would you recommend this? Because, I mean, you can't get that back. I'm talking uh, about uh, I'm, I'm talking about I'm that. talking about alligators and you know like it, should you be running your your dogs in this type of water with these heating conditions down there and alligators coming out to play? Yeah, I, I guess the answer there is if 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 I'm not willing to go in the water, I'm not putting my dog in the water. Um, so again, I've never had to deal with that up here in, in Minnesota, but um, 
that would be my theory is if you're in an area that you think you have uh, gators uh, or anything that might uh, do do harm to your dog, then I'm probably not putting my dog in it. And I know a lot of the trainers down south that, that use the dog to product, and I, I work with them. You know, a lot of them go into those areas uh, ahead of time and, and, and look for the gators and get them out of there before they're going to do any training that particular day. Now, when we're dealing with a hunting area, we don't have that probably have that opportunity to go in there and scout the night before or look for gators and get them out of there or do whatever they do to get rid of them. But but the, the retriever trainers I know that are down south, if they've got a gator problem, they normally go through that and keep a really close eye on it because it's it doesn't take much to, you know, to lose a dog or lose a limb on a dog uh, from one of these things. Let's see. Let's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Skip. Oh, he's absolutely right. And uh, I've, I've learned uh Gosh, some of the places I've hunted in southern Louisiana, you hear two to three dogs a year disappearing. And what I learned, mm -hmm. uh, even growing up in Florida, dogs were constantly getting eaten by gators around me. I lived in a rural area. But it always seemed like there were big 8, 10, 12-foot gators. What I've learned, unfortunately, in the last few years from guys like Drew Keith, is that like a five-foot gator that's very skinny and weighs maybe 50 pounds will greedily attack a Rottweiler. They're all dangerous. They all want to kill dogs. Mm -hmm. And so what um, – Steve Biggers is down out of uh, El Campo, Texas. He's got a famous teal operation, and he is inundated with um, – so the answer is absolutely don't get your dog anywhere near a gator. I've heard guys shooting at the gator as it approaches the dog, and it won't pull off. Um, but Steve Biggers runs rice fields in that south-central part of Texas. There aren't any gators in them. And he gets all kinds of hunters from Louisiana and all over coming early in the season just so they can run their dog. Teal season, I mean, till the flurry of action is typically over half an hour after daylight, as you know. It's fast and furious and awesome. Um, so you don't have to deal as much with overheating, but they'll go to some places, rice fields, and no gators if they humanly possibly can and run their dogs without having to worry about going gator hunting the day before and all that. Yeah. Pete, um, before we move into some water situations, some other things that I've seen during this early season, especially on the Canada Goose early season, I know Skip has seen this. Talk to Skip and I about what is a remote sit? How established does the handler have to be with his or her dog after the handoff is done from trainer or it's self-trained by the handler and owner? The, it, how important is the remote sit to make sure that you are 100% in cahoots with your dog with saying, get them and making sure that, you know, he or she is placed in the, you know, where there's no chance of being out in front of the, the barrels, all of the stuff that goes with the remote sit and your yep. dog, not necessarily sitting right next to you at all times. Well, well, where I would use it and see it most often is, is in a field hunting situation where I've got the dog in, in some kind of a hut or, and he's going to be, he or she is going to be next to me. I normally position the dog back behind me a little bit, but unless you're sure that that dog is, is extremely steady, uh, one of two things, that dog shouldn't be in the field or it should be tethered somehow on top of that to make sure that it isn't running in front of the gun because you're laying in a, in a, um, in a layout blind and you get a, a breaking dog that comes charging out after birds chad i mean that's just a, a formula for disaster and um so a remote sit the most common uh, place i saw it and the most value that i would see to it is putting that dog in a remote sit out in a in a stubble field somewhere with me and a group of hunters and then i would typically i was i almost all my dogs were left-handed healing dogs they would they were both-sided healing but predominantly left hand so i would always position 
the uh, holding blind for the for the dog off to my left, and I would put them just a little back beyond me so that I could look out of my holding blind and I could make eye contact and I could see my dog over to the left. I didn't put him so far back that I couldn't see the dog anymore because at the point where he, the dog might break, he's already got a full head of steam and he's out in front of you. So what I would do is, is I would train on that to make sure the dog was nice and steady. And I typically would hiss at them a lot rather than just yelling, sit, I would be, keep going. And then what we would do because the dog had been trained with a remote training collar, turn off light stimulation with the sit command. If he started getting up and started moving, uh, I would just like tap, tap, tap. I'd have my transmitter hanging around my neck, and I would just tap that dog lightly, or even on, on the dog trick collars, we've got a pager vibration, and I can tap the vibrate without any static uh, stimulation just to reinforce that I want that dog sitting there and not breaking on the birds. And then the other thing that's really important when you're waterfall hunting, a lot of us have that tendency to, you know, pow, 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 the birds all fell and they're on the ground, and then the first thing we yell is the dog's name and let them go charging out. I'd let the dog sit there for a while. I'd let him sit and think and watch so that he didn't get used to being released literally when the, you know, when the action was still just finishing up. So some of it has to do with making, you know, and it, it all revolves around safety, in my opinion, out in the field. So the remote sit is extremely important. And it's one of the harder things to accomplish because you're on your back, you're in a blind somewhere. And it's very difficult to reinforce the commands because you're you're at a disadvantage laying down. But before we get to all that point where we're out in the field, we simulate all that type of training. And I just saw Brad Aaron, a video Brad Arrington did. Uh, I believe it was was for you where he was working on remote sit and having the dog in the in a hole in a um, holding blind or in a in a uh, in a hut. So we do all that training beforehand uh, before we ever take the dog out into the field and 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 expect them to do that type of uh control in an actual game situation and i always tell this when i'm doing a seminar i always pick some young people out of the out of the crowd and they say here's here's something that an analogy i always make the the first time kids go out and play let's say a youth baseball game uh the parents just didn't take them and put them in the game did they no they practiced because I, the fear was is that little little johnny would get a hit and if he had never practiced he wouldn't know to run to first base, second base, the pitcher's mound, or back to the to the parking lot. So it's really important that we do the, the training ahead of time in a controlled situation, simulate what we're going to expect in the field, and then we got to have a way to reinforce the command out in the field, Chad. When I I love the idea of how you talk about reinforcement in the field. But it's all about the prep. And I talk to me and Skip real quick of how important this preparation period is for the handler as well to build confidence in your skills. And where I'm going with this, Mr. Pete Fisher, is when Brad handed Axel off to me for the first time, which was last year, he went, you know, he did three years and master hunter and retriever champion and all the stuff that mm -hmm. he did. It's a very mm -hmm. it's a very intimidating process in my opinion. I have all the confidence in the world in my ability to build a blind and 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 scout a hunt and call a duck or call yeah. a goose and call the shot even though I do get ridiculed a lot <clears throat> Mr. Pete for not calling the shot enough because I'm so mesmerized by the power and majesty of ducks and geese doing what they do. But it's very intimidating taking this this just this badass machine 
that has all this accreditation in, you know, in the retriever world and then putting him in the, you're having the responsibility as a handler. Talk to me about the, how important this prep time is for the handler just as much as the dog. It, it, extremely important. So when I train dogs for 30 some odd years, Chad, you know, one of my standard lines is first I train the dog, then I'm going to train the, the owner. And so that's really important. Uh, I'd, I'd say to individuals as they pick their dog up, um, you know, I've, my next job after training the dog is to train you because I can't go with the dog home. I've got to stay here and, and do my job and my family. I can't go go to your home and, and spend uh, a week or two uh, making sure that, you know, the, the, the training transition to the owner uh, gets done without any hitches. So it's really important to do that, uh, you know, the handoff, so to speak, once you've put a fair amount of time in this particular dog, then it's also the owner's responsibility to get out and work with this dog and try and set up some scenarios where you, you can get the opportunity to, to work with this dog as a, as a team member. And unfortunately, we still have a lot of uh, hunters, trainers, individuals out there that still treat that dog like a piece of equipment. And I'm sure we've got hunters out there that don't pick up their shotgun until the morning of the duck opener. Uh, a lot of us shoot sporting plays all summer long and we're out uh, shooting and we're out practice training with our dogs. Many of us run hunt tests or field trials as, as a way to, to keep sharpening our dog skills. But I think that's really important is, is that, you know, you're, you got to work as a team with your dog. And if, if you don't learn how to handle that dog from the trainer, if, if you did send the dog off for professional training, once you get them back, if you don't do that practice at home, you're probably just wasted a lot of money on training, Chad. I love it. It's very well said, and it's <clears throat> so important. And Brad's the same theory. I mean, he's when you book a session or a, an extended training, um, you know, package from Mossy Pond Retrievers. One of the requirements is if you sign this contract, you are saying that you're coming to Georgia and you're staying at the lodge for three nights, and you're going to go over everything before you depart with this dog. And I think that is so smart for trainers and kennels alike all over the country to do because it ensures that they're leaving that dog with a responsible handler that just went through the same PhD course, if you will, for 72 hours. It might mm -hmm. not be as long as the dog was there, but they're going to retain a lot of good information and be able to take a lot of notes and video and things of that nature. Skip, you have any thoughts for Mr. Pete? Oh, I just have a million questions for him, you know, um, I would, I would like to know, um, so I have a heck of a dove hole over on the Kansas border. Most years it's, it's like a mini Mexico lights out shoot. We have a generous limit. We take out five or six family members. And on top of that, in our dove limits, we shoot an equal now amount or more of these awesome, beautiful, the only non-native species that I'm so thrilled is taking over the U.S. <laughs> is those uh, Eurasian collared doves, you know. Um, we hunt on the fringe of a suburban area and they are everywhere. And they, so we double up on our shooting. Sometimes we'll shoot a hundred birds on a, on a dove opener. And, uh, I was appalled because my dog Luna, um, I take her out and she's just bursting with uh, excitement, even for just, uh, to be throwing dummies. If she's gone almost 12 hours without it and she's crazy about birds and everything. But the first time I took her out as a, as a pup about two and a half years ago on one of these crazy dove shoots I'm talking about, I was, I was shocked that she kind of lost interest after about the, I was like, Oh, she's going to retrieve a hundred birds today. This is going to be so great. 
she seemed to lose interest after like 15 or 20. I was exasperated with her. One of them landed like in the mud, two and a half feet offshore, but there was like a little ditch full of water. And she's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm like, I think I overdid it with her. Could you speak to that a little bit? What is ideal in terms of the, that first day, especially in warm weather, especially when, when it's kind of a volume shoot compared to, to duck hunting? What's what's an ideal amount to run your dog? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a, another great question, Skip. And and I would answer it. It's, it's uh, similar to, you know, having your, your children out when they're little and you're playing with them. And uh, maybe you're you're just doing something as simple as as bat and ball, you know, and playing catch. And so one of the things that I found with raising two two sons is that we always try and stop where the the interest was still there. And uh, like going on vacation, you always you always leave the vacation when the kids still want to stay. You don't want to be be uh, taking the kids on vacation and and on get leave them there or have them on vacation at a point where they they say you know let's let's I'm tired let's go home. Um, so I, to to relate that to dog training, when you're dealing with a puppy, the attention span with these puppies and young dogs is very short, just like your children. And, you know, and I remember uh, uh, my two sons, Nate and Brett, you know, dad, let's go play ball. Let's play catch. And at the point where I was able to round up the gloves and the ball, they had already gotten on their bicycles and they were bicycling. <laughs> so the attention span is really short and dogs are every bit the same skip. And so when we're training, uh, and I just ran into this a while back, I, I, I don't train anymore. I, I work for the dog trick company, but I had a fairly large retriever training kennel up here in central Minnesota. And I still got my fingers on all sorts of things uh, in the Labrador retriever world. And we breed my master hunter, Trey, uh, a number of times a year. And anyway, I was talking to somebody that had a pup out of him and, and Trey will run through a brick wall to get a bird for you and had him down for a winter trip with Brad Arrington. Uh, that's how I got to know Brad so well years back because you can't do much with, with a dog up here in, in Minnesota, especially water work in the middle of winter. But uh, uh, I was talking to an individual that had a pup on a tray, and, and they said, you know, I just, uh, you know, he's not like Trey that. He's got that that fire and drive and desire. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, well, you know, I'll take him out and throw dummies for him. And, and uh, you know, after about 30 or 40 of them, he starts leaving a layout there. I said, come on, <laughs> you know, you should be stopping that long before that. At, at that, that, This puppy was less than a year of age, uh, is eight months old. And I said, you know, the, the key there is try and get something accomplished, build that drive and desire, work on your, on your obedience and your control, making sure you got a good citizen on your hands, but stop at the point where you start seeing uh, some disinterest in the retrieving. Because once, uh, in my opinion, once they, you've gotten to a point where they've decided that they're not, they're not interested anymore, that next session makes it damn difficult to bring them back. So I've always been one with a puppy to err on the on the side of uh, of ending the session while this dog is still interested. So in a hunting situation, to answer your question, maybe your dog, maybe we should have taken it and put it back in the in the crate at that point. But sometimes with some of these dogs, Skip, to be fair to everybody that owns a dog, sometimes I've seen these dogs where you talk about an on and off switch where they were, you know, going gangbusters, get the last bird to retrieve. And the next one, they just turned it off and said, that's it. So how did we know? But always err on the side of, of 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 less is better, in my opinion, when we're working with a retriever. That's fascinating because a lot of us uh, who are, have very busy jobs and or travel a bit, we always carry a guilt complex. We don't talk about it. We're like we always feel like we should have gotten our dog more work, more retrieves, and more birds. And so 
Mm -hmm. the tendency when there is a lot of birds is to, is to want to run and run and run and run them, but it makes a lot of sense, especially with the younger dogs in the comparison to small children. And I have three uh, struck crystal clear. <laughs> exactly. Right. We, we talked about the remote sit, Mr. Pete Fisher. Safety is everything with these dogs. They're our best friend. They're our family. With the explosion of popularity in this roto-molded kennel, transportation kennel, I guess you would call it, you know, just it's just a phenomenon, right? They've come on strong. There's several different manufacturers building and, and making them now. What are your feelings yeah. on them with the weight of them, how heavy they are, the expense of them? We spare no expense with our dogs. Are they worth the money? Are you a fan of these, a believer in them? Do you own one? And would you tell any dog owner to put one of these in the back of his or her pickup? I, I would. I'm, I'm a huge fan of them, Chad. And, and I own uh, a number of them, and I'm not going to mention the, the brand name, <laughs> Uh, for fear that one of the other uh, brands will say, geez, Pete, I thought you were using ours, but I do have them. I, I uh, There are some that are uh, unbelievably heavy, as in weight heavy, you know, to lift in and out of a, out of a vehicle. But there's also some out, out there that are uh, lighter weight that are extremely uh, tough and durable. And so I'm a, I'm a, I believe in them. I, I really do. And, uh, you know, those old plastic berry kennels, you know, they served a purpose, but uh, you know, you're going down the, the highway at, at uh, 75 miles an hour and something happens and your your dog's not. Well, heaven forbid they're not in any kind of a crate. I mean, that's that's just uh, uh, pure ignorance on my part. And I still see that up here in rural Minnesota. People driving down the road with a, with a dog free in the back of a, a pickup with not confined at all. Head sticking out, ears blown in the wind. But I still see a fair amount of them in the back seat of a vehicle just running loose. And um and uh, so the idea is, is we want to confine that dog in a smaller kennel, as the smallest kennel as we possibly can, so that he's not tumbling all over if we do have an accident. But we want to make sure that that kennel is 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 pretty durable. And so there are about three or four of them on the market that are just amazing, Chad. And I'm a firm believer in them. And I, and I think it's all of us, you know, when you look at what we've invested in these dogs nowadays, um, you know, I just bought a new puppy, Chad, and he was a $2,000 puppy. I had to pay $650 just to get him here from Bozeman, Montana. That, that was, you know, and so you look at investing three, four, five hundred $500 in a travel crate. Um, I think it's worth it. It's, and it goes back to just the way I operate. I have good, good equipment. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I feed a good quality dog food. I'm not going to skimp. I have a good training collar. I shoot a good shotgun. Uh, I, I think that if you're into this, and I'm not, not to be a snob about it, but I think if you're going to do all of this and do it right, uh, it's, it's, there's so many different pieces that you got to have to be successful, but also the safety part of it. And, and so I think with almost all of these, you get what you pay for. And so I'm a firm believer in those, those travel trades. So after my cold December hunt, on the Yellowstone River in Montana, and Axel has done his job in the current all day, bringing out back greenhead after greenhead after Canada, greater Canada's Pete. These are 14-pound birds up there in Montana just gorging yeah. themselves with corn. You're going to tell me and look down on me uh, if he's in the back seat driving 75 on the highway back to the Hysham Hotel in the Sugar Beet capital of Montana. He's back there, no seatbelt on. You're going to say, no, as cold as he is, as wet as he was, dry him off, let him sit in the heater for a minute, but get him in that confined travel kennel. I, 
I would. I'd figure out a way. What I do, Chad, is I have a, uh, for those situations, I have a smaller travel kennel that'll actually fit in my back seat of my pickup. And uh, so then, uh, again, sometimes these travel crates are, you know, got to be in the back in the bed because they're so large. But what I would do is I would dry that dog off really well. Um, and if it was that cold as what you just uh, mentioned, I'd figure out a way to have them in the back seat uh, in a travel crate. I like it. I like the way that you can just lay down authority. You're not passing judgment on me because I have been <laughs> I have been guilty of that. Skip, have you been guilty yeah. of letting your hunting partner ride in the front seat like, you know, like he's the king of the show? Oh, there's nothing better. I have a, I run pretty small abs most of the time, 40, 45 pound females. And there's nothing that makes me happier than having my 12 gauge laying there on, I propped up in the, in the front against the seat and her head maybe draped over or draped around the stick shift right on the, on the side of the seat, looking up at me the whole time I'm done. That's a, uh, that was my, my first lab entire life long before these fancy kennels came out. It might be worth noting in the brand escapes me. Somebody did make a, is making a really good rotomolded molded or high end, kennel just to go in the back seats of SUVs and this kind of thing. But if you have a big, a bigger dog, I'd like to ask Pete that question. You know, how do you know, I've seen some, some good dog owners put dogs in pretty small kennels. Hey, they curl up anyway. They sleep like wolves in the snow. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen guys with micro labs, I call them, you know, 30 pound <laughs> dogs in these <laughs> kennels that can't move by themselves because they want them to have all that room. Yeah that a little bit how do you gauge the right size kennel for your pooch Uh, i prefer smaller uh than bigger and the reason is the safety factor so the dog's not bouncing all around in in that bigger kennel so uh i do use a smaller kennel for 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 my dogs but i think a a couple things come into play here you know if you're traveling on some back roads and you're after a hunt and and you're scouting a little bit on a gravel road you know the dog's in the vehicle with you that's one thing to be trooling down the highway at 75 miles an hour uh, and the dog just standing in the backseat, that's that's a different story. Um, but as far as the size, I, I personally like the smaller size, and you are correct. They they make There are some out there that actually, uh, they designed them so the back of the uh, of the kennel has got, is like it's been cut off so that you can slide it in the back of an SUV. And you know how most of the SUV seats are tipped backwards? that it kind of fits underneath that, so to speak. So they have, there's a lot of really good, uh, uh, you know, durable kennels on the market, but I've been one to, to go with a smaller kennel uh, <laughs> because they're easier to lift, but also because of the, the safety factor so that the dog's not bouncing around in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to realize, and you touched on this, Skip, you know, dogs are, are you know, before we domesticated to them, they were a den animal. They were just like the, the, the fox, the coyote. You know, they lived, they lived in a den. And so it's not uncommon to see a dog. I'll leave a crate open in my, in my building where my dogs are or if I've got them in the house with me. And, and they'll crawl underneath my desk uh, uh, where I'm at. Or they'll go, in the, uh, they'll go in a crate, even though they can lay anywhere. Uh, they, before we domesticated these animals, they lived in dens. They had their young in dens. And so, you know, the, the people will say to me, well, Jesus seems, uh, you know, putting them in a kennel and confining them, you know, seems, uh, like it's, it's not good for the dog. And I say, you know, you have to realize where these dogs came from before we domesticate them. They lived in a den. So that's why most of them would prefer a small spot. And you touched on that right away. That's fascinating. Pete, I'm, I'm going to move on to something that I, and I know Skip is, feels this is just as important. Um, in the wildfowl gear issue, there's at least 
five, six manufacturers. You, I know you work for Dogtra. There's other manufacturers that are very, you know, reputable out there on the market in the training collar business. That's just the write-ups in here. That doesn't even include the full-page color ads. This is a big part of retriever training. The ethics of a training collar, Pete Fisher. Are we doing a dog, yes or no, Pete, an injustice by not training him or her with a collar as our quote-unquote last resort of discipline if something's going on at 400, 500-yard blind retrieve. Talk to us about the ethics of a training caller because there are questions out there, Mr. Pete Fisher, about the safety. Is it injure the dog? Does it hurt the dog? Talk to us a little bit about that, please. Sure. Well, you know, to answer your first question, um, I think it's a disservice to any dog that isn't trained, period. That's that's just dogs. Whether it's a, whether it's a pet dog, Chad, or a, or a, a gun dog, or a dog that's going to be a gun dog and a dog that runs for some ribbons. I think uh, a trained dog is a happy dog. Um, in regards to the to the training collar itself, all training collars work on what's called static electricity. Static electricity is where I walk across dry carpet and I go ground myself on a doorknob and I get that little shock, so to speak. So they run off of what's called a milliamperage. And, and people have this misconception, you know, for years we, we called them shock collars. Some people still do. There's sites out there that, you know, call themselves banned shock collar and all this jazz. And unfortunately, most of these people uh, have never seen a dog trained with a remote training collar, an e-collar. By the way, we don't call them shock collars anymore. Um, they have never seen a dog and seen the intricacy of the control that we have over these dogs. And then you run into individuals that we call in, in the uh, in the industry as pure positive, that they don't think any negative reinforcement is required to train a dog. You just wait around all day long for the dog to sit down and then you give them a treat. So I don't, I don't have that kind of time and, and I don't have that kind of uh, ability just to wait around all day long for my dog to do something and I can positively re reward them. So what we do is we first teach them the command. We use positive and negative reinforcement. That's how animals learn. And and so I think it's really important that the dog is trained to start with. But the remote training collar is is just another tool that we use to reinforce commands so that we have uh, control over the dog. We can modify the dog's behavior. Anybody that uh, I would challenge anybody uh, that's never used one and is a critic of the remote training collar to, to spend an afternoon with me or any number of trainers that use them. And they are very popular nowadays, not only in the retriever training world, but also in the pet industry. I'll be out at the IACP event in San Diego here in about a month. That's the international for canine uh, professionals. And it's all pet dog trainers. And it's going to be five to 700 pet dog trainers across the country. And they are all pro e-collars uh, trainers. And so the e-collar, the modern e-collar is really a, a, a phenomenal piece of equipment. We can vary the, uh, the, the amount of stimulation that we use to reinforce uh, a particular command because every dog's tolerance to static electricity is different, but they've become mainstream. There's still groups out there and individuals that want to ban them, uh, just like they want to ban our guns and everything else because they don't know any better. But I challenge any one of these people uh, to go out and, uh, and and spend a day with a trainer and see how a remote training collar is used and, and how happy these dogs are and how efficient it is. And I did a seminar here about a year ago, and this woman challenged me, and there were about 300 people at it. And uh, she said, you know, you're, I see you're using a shock collar. And I said, well, yeah, you can call it whatever you want. But uh, she said, well, I don't use them on mine. And, and um, 
you know, my dog is a hunting dog and I listened to her and I said, that's all fine and dandy. And I said, where do you live? And she said, oh, I just live over here in Sox Center about 10 minutes away. And I said, well, I'm going to be here for about an hour doing this seminar. Why don't you go run on home and get your dog and bring it on back. And then you, you bring it out here and we'll do some different things. And I'll have Trey do all the triple retrieves, multiple retrieves, 150 yard blind retrieves. And then I'll let you do the same thing with your dog. So I'll wait right here and you go on home and, and get your dog. And not to be too cocky about it, but that is what I said to her. And obviously she never went and got her dog. But you've been around enough trained dogs now in your life, Chad. And you've seen Brad Arrington and Lee Howard train dogs and how this this equipment is used and and it's it's a phenomenal product and and uh and we may have a lot of great uh manufacturers out there i do work for dogs but i got friends in every one of the uh other other manufacturers i will i, I gotta say this though people that buy e-callers on amazon you have to be very careful because there are e-callers out there that are chinese made uh, there have been their Chinese companies that's propped up with uh, money that from the Chinese government. These callers are out there. You can buy them for about twenty nine dollars a piece and they're just junk. And so those are not the 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 e-callers that we use of, of dog truck or the sport dog brand or the Garmin Tritronics or DT systems. Those are the quality products that are out there. And those are uh, our competitors at Doctor. And I'm not afraid to say there's our are good products, but all this stuff that's being sold for $29 on Amazon, that's just junk and you should, uh, and don't waste your time or money. Unfortunately, they got all the, the sponsored ads on Amazon and you can hear I'm get, getting a little irritated by this chat, but they're all the sponsored ads when you go and look for this stuff and it's the first ones that pop up. And, uh, but there's a lot of good e-callers on the, on the, on the market today. Uh, none of them are going to be these, these $29, uh, pieces of junk that you find on Amazon. No. One more question before Skip chimes in on on callers. My dog's out of the kennel. He's jumping around. He's happy. Might not be paying attention to me as much. Minding. I see this all the time, no matter how well trained the dog is. If I say, Axel, heal. He's going to heal, but he wants to play around. He wants to go jump up on my daughter, maybe hug her a little bit. But as soon as that collar goes on, it's a different story. Like he knows mm -hmm. it's, it's game time. Is this what we refer to as collar conditioning? And if it is not, what is it? And what is collar conditioning? Well, well collar conditioning in, in, in my mind or in my uh, training is how I use the remote training collar to reinforce commands. The dog already knows three-step process. First, I'm going to teach that dog to come to me. Then I'm going to teach him to go stationary. Then I'm going to teach them to go away from me. I'm going to do it all on a leash. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people about remote training collars, I'll say, well, the most important piece that of equipment I have is I e-collar condition my dog as a rope or a leash. And they say, well, no, you know, wait a minute, Pete, you don't understand. Uh, my dog's really good on the rope or leash. Uh, well, that's fine, but I still need that rope or leash. That's the steering wheel for my dog. That's how I'm going to guide him, show him what I want, how I'm going to get this dog to understand the commands and how to turn off that light stimulation of negative reinforcement. And so what I tell people is, is if I just put the training collar on the dog, as my old buddy Pat Nolan, who's, who's a really good retriever trainer and trains a lot of canines, would say, and I just start thumping them around with the remote training collars, the dog's never felt the, the, uh, the static electricity before. He doesn't know what that is. And so I have to teach him. I have to show him. So a really important thing to have on my dog is that rope or leash so I can guide him into the recall, so I can guide him into the sit position. And so that's the conditioning process that I put this dog through. It's a form of what we call avoidance ch training, Chad. And, and a story that I tell people is, is uh, 
the primary game bird up here in the Midwest, upland bird, is pheasants. Pheasants like to run. If they get an opportunity to, to outrun the hunter, they're going to do that. And, of course, the dog is on a hot track, and he wants to chase him out until he gets to the bird. Unfortunately, the dog and the bird go out the end of the field 100 yards away, and the hunter never gets a shot at it. So that particular hunter says, you know what, I'm going to go get myself an e-collar. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to get control on this dog. And he just goes down to the to the local retail store, uh, big box store, and he, he buys himself a training collar. He puts it on the dog. He never conditions the dog to the static electricity. And now he takes him out the next Saturday and he says, hey, this is my opportunity. We're going to level the playing field. Dog gets on a bird, starts chasing out the end of the field. He starts turning up the stimulation, gets to a mild stimulation, moderate stimulation. The dog's ignoring him because the dog's in high drive mode. He's got a distraction in front of him. So he finally turns the thing wide open and the dog yelps and he stops his chasing of the pheasant out the end of the field. And one of two things is going to happen. He might come back to the handler or he might run away. And now he's got the dog on no rope or leash. And let's say the dog decides, hey, that was a lot of stimulation. I don't know where the hell that came from. I'm just going to bolt. So now we've got the training collar and the valuable hunting dog out running out the end of the field. And the guy throws the transmitter down and says, geez, I knew these shock collars were no good. But that person never laid down all the groundwork. And what Brad and Lee and myself would say is that dog didn't know the out how to get out of that uncomfortable feel of the static by complying with a command. And so that's the reason for the conditioning process with a rope or a leash long before we take this dog out in the field, that he's got to understand uh, how to get out of that uncomfortable feeling. Once the dog knows that and will comply with the command, then we can take it and start using it out in the real world. Wow, Skip, is this man legit or what? Skip, talk to me how smart Pete Fisher is about dogs. His shirt says <laughs> Fisher's black dog. I mean, this guy knows his stuff, right, Skip Knowles? Oh, it's amazing. I hadn't, hadn't thought about uh, a dog bolting. Um, I, I was more concerned like that dog then associates that pheasant with pain, you know, and you can reverse their, their drive equally as well. But I never thought of how they need to have knowledge of how to escape and how to fix it to get better. I've seen uh, – yeah. On the question of e-collars, man, I had the good luck to go test some Benelli's in, in Europe. And to, you see Italian trainers, they don't use them. They're probably illegal in Europe. And you just, they're yelling at their dog the whole time and whistle, whistle, blow, blow. And, and the dog is just confused and worn out. It, it, it was hilarious. I actually recorded one of the gesticulations this guy was making. He was getting exhausted, waving his arms at which way for his dog to go. And the dog was listening. And that dog would be so much better with a, a little stimulation. I tried to use them. Um, shock collars back when they were called that in the mid nineties with my first lab and she was a headstrong female, but she, they didn't have near the adjustability that they do now. They had like one setting zap. And uh, my trainer took one look at Luna. She, and she I mean, uh, hope and said, man, she's a flashy, classy hunter, but you're going to have to do this the hard way. Force fetching as far as you can be able to take her. Cause she doesn't take the collar. Well, she would jump every time he's out there and he's like, she's just not, she's just not it, but it's changed so much now. So I'll be honest. If you touched briefly on the safety issue. Where I live, you've seen the photos, right? I mean, there's bears and mountain lions. You've seen my giant mule deer all over my yard. It's a huge safety issue. When we, my wife takes her out um, walking around, and, or I have her on my mountain bike, and she's healing close. People are like, oh, he's got a e-collar on that dog. He's a hunter. He's mean. He doesn't like animals anyway. <laughs> That's nothing can be further from the truth. I can't have her bolting after a, a big mule deer buck and going, Heaven knows how far when there's uh, land sharks everywhere in the form of cougars right in my community that just yep. love 
love to eat dogs and the coos are always where the deer are right and and we have bears <laughs> out the wazoo and you just have to have control of your animal one place we hunt in northern colorado uh, it's hard against a highway, and it seems like at least once a year we see somebody's dog blistering out over a, a, a grader that somebody shot in the rear, right? It's slowly going over the highway, and you have to be able to call that animal off and have control over it, or it's going right. to be kill. Uh, it's a huge, huge safety issue as well as – it's like if, it's like children. Back to that metaphor, if, if you teach children manners and they're a little strict when they're young, you save a whole lot of yelling at them and punishing them and making them get timeouts mm-hmm. and all that stuff. It's – it's a it's a no-brainer for me and chad to your point man luna is a spaz still and she's five years old and she still will bounce up when i go outside she's so excited knocks the kids over i just hold the e-collar up i don't even have it on her and she goes oh showtime and that's what i love about what you guys just said about the kid analogy is that it's amazing to me when you're actually getting that hunting scenario once October, November rolls around and the training's done and there been what we, you know, the collar conditioning and everything that Pete Fisher's been touching on. I don't, I remember one time I had to hit a button last year on Axel. One time in the whole season, he picked up over a thousand birds. He picked over 200 snow geese on the last hunt of the season. So one time I had to use it. So I just want, my point is Pete that, if it's done right, like Skip just alluded to with the children at a young age, and it's conditioned right, and that no and that out is there, like you and Lee Howard and Brad Arrington talk about, it's amazing how much you don't have to use it when it's go time. But you have it there just in case. Is that fair to say, Pete? Very much. It's like life insurance. Better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So, you know, the training caller is, is long-term behavior management, just like any of our, our training is done. And, and I'll run into individuals that'll say to me, well, if you train with the e-collar, does that mean that he's always got to have the e-collar on? And I'll say to him, well, no, not necessarily. But my dogs, if they're out training or if I'm in a situation where I know I got to have control, like in a hunting situation, uh, the e-collar is going to be on. Them. And so one of the things I always tell people is, you know, uh, let's say you learn the ABCs when you were in school and you learn the ABCs so you can read and write. Correct. Do you need the ABCs in front of you in order to read and write now? No. So it's just, it was a tool that, it's a tool that we used to teach the dog something or a human being something. Now, uh, with that said, like I said earlier, my dogs do have the training collar on them. Should I need it to reinforce the command? So I, I'm one of those that, uh, when I'm out and take, I live, still live on 120 acres out here, uh, not far from where my business was. And I take my dogs for a, a walk about five times a day, get them a lot of exercise. And, um, if I think there's vehicles coming up and down our private road, uh, I'm going to have the training collar on my dog, so I can call them in. And uh, But there's a lot of times where I, I might go out the back door and start mowing some lawn. My dogs don't have the training collar on all the time. Uh, but it is a tool that we use uh, to reinforce commands that the dog's been taught. And so when you get them out in the hunting field, if your dog's been e-collar trained, I think you're going to want to have an e-collar on them. Pete, have you seen this magazine yet this year? I, I, I have. In fact, it's, it's uh, uh, what I do with all the magazines that I get. Uh, I put them on a pile. And now that I'm going to be traveling here, like out to the Master National Retriever Club event in Idaho, I'll be uh, on a plane for a while. I bring all my reading material with and I read as I'm on the plane. So, yeah, it's uh, it's on my pile of, of uh, magazines to take with as I start traveling here in, a, in a, the next month. So you'll agree with me when I say that being on a live Zoom podcast with the man that made this magazine with the help of his unbelievable team, it's kind of like 
yeah. having like Mickey Mantle on the cover of Sports Illustrated and being on the phone with him, right? <laughs> Like this is Skip yeah, Knowles. Like cool you're an authority yeah. on Sporting Dog, and you have educated it. But this is freaking Skip Knowles, Pete. Look at him. Yeah. I want you to cherish this time because this book <laughs> is the Bible. Pete Fisher is the Bible of duck and goose hunters and dog yeah. enthusiasts. Okay, he also has the Gun Dog magazine in his repertoire. This man is also responsible for Gun Dog. So I just want to make sure that the audience knows that we are not dealing with somebody or something this magazine right here that's not of the utmost important to the duck and goose hunter dog enthusiast waterfowl enthusiast pete this is the bible of duck and goose hunters when i don't see it in a lodge i don't take that lodge serious i love that you have piles of them what does it mean for you this time of year when you see this in your mailbox and it's that time where you're like, oh man, I can just feel a little bit of the air changing. I see the look in my yeah. dog's face. I look at my gun and my dog, my gun's even looking back at me a little bit. My boat's looking at me in a different way. My duck calls are saying, touch me, Pete, touch me. Talk to me, Pete, about this time of the year and how fired up you are. Well, you know, it's, it's what we, uh, as outdoorsmen, uh, retriever trainers, hunters, uh, sporting plays enthusiasts. It's what we've been waiting for all, all year long. And uh, so with that comes a lot of excitement. Uh, those, you know, and, and let's, you know, we don't see a lot of waterfall up here in central Minnesota anymore. Um, and I think we're going to see even less this year, Chad, because of the drought. But it's still a, a hell of a lot of fun to go out and, and sit and, and, you know, experience that crisp morning, even though there may not be a lot of birds around. But I think that's the enthusiasm that all of us have, uh, whether we're a waterfall hunter or a, or a upland hunter, and I'm a real avid pheasant hunter myself. Um, and so those are the things that over the years, uh, when you get all those publications in, in the mail and, you, and, and the weather starts to change, and, and it just makes it, uh, the excitement just continues to build. And so, yeah, I've, I've always liked all those magazines. I've always been a I'm not a great storybook reader, but I, but I love the magazines. And, and now as I travel for dogs or doing different things, that's when I catch up on all my reading. Because if I read when I go to bed, it only lasts about 10 minutes before I fall asleep. <laughs> so I bring them all with me when I'm on a plane and I, and I read uh, and catch up on all of them uh, while, while I'm on a plane. My dogs have often looked at Skip Knowles, Pete Fisher, when he's on hunts with me and wonder what the heck he's shooting at because nothing's falling. Um <laughs> I've seen it many times hunting with Skip and the dogs are just like, you've got to be kidding me. One time they saw him at the mini Mart. It was a Casey's in Hutchinson, Kansas. And they asked me, what is he doing here? Because they want to retrieve Pete. They want somebody that can knock the birds. Down. I'm totally kidding. He is a dead eye. I like to joke with Skip yeah. because we get along. We have like this, we have a friendship that he knows where I'm coming from. I know where he's coming from and where I'm going with that Pete Fisher is that I want you to end this awesome conversation on the intimacy, the relationship, how you know what your dog's going to do, how your dog knows what you're doing. It's all because of this relationship, this bonding, this training. I know Skip feels the same way about his dogs, but we develop this. Wow. I knew you were going to do that. We develop it as duck hunters of like, I'm not even going to look at the sky. I'm just going to watch your eyes. And they tell yeah. us when it's time to get the duck call, you know, pick it up off our lanyard. Talk to me a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your love, the passion, the intimacy, just the overall unbelievable awesomeness 
that duck dogs, sporting dogs, retrievers, pointers alike. But let's talk about duck dogs and sporting dogs because I know you love trainer, trainer, uh, retrievers, Pete. Talk to me a little bit about all of that. Well, you know, they're, they're truly amazing animals and all of them. Dogs are in general. And, uh, but I've, I've, I've always been a, a retriever guy, even though I own one German short hair, uh, because I do so uh, a fair amount of upland hunting, but I upland hunt my, my Labradors also, but you do, you do develop, hopefully you develop that bond. And, uh, and that comes from, from training and spending time with them. And, um, I, I think that's really a, an important part of it as you take the dog out in the field and, and just, uh, I've got some photos uh, last year, I shot uh, the first bird I shot in, in the uh, opening morning. I, of all things, Chad, I shot a banded goose. Um, you know, a, a group came over and I shot it, and, and I it, it fell into the the grass and crawled back into a swamp. and And Trey found it for me and brought it out, and here it had a band on it. and And the photos that I got of uh, uh, this goose uh, with the band hanging up, and Trey looking out into the sky looking for more birds, I just cherish those, and it just you know, you, you can't to see those photos bring back so many good memories of that hunt. And I was hunting in an area with my my nephew, Nick, which was one of my old pieces of property that I sold him. And it was a, an area where uh, his father, my brother, hunted and, and my that brother uh, passed away a year and a half ago. And we have a lot of dear memories and 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 um, and hunts that we, we did out in that particular area. And so it was just really cool to sit there and reflect about you know past hunts that we had even though we don't shoot the amount of birds we don't see the amount of birds that we used to but really the dog plays such a big part into it and and it's it it gives us you know whether it's the shooting the sporting plays or training that dog in the off season uh chad and skip it just gives us an opportunity to extend the season so to speak that's i think probably my my biggest part that i enjoy uh, about working with the dogs and uh, because it gives me an opportunity, I don't. I can I can be working the dog on a dummy launcher or whatever it may be. He doesn't care. Trey doesn't care if it's a live bird that's been shot for him, or if it's a if it's a bumper shot off of one of these thunder launchers that I use for, or somebody standing out in the field. They don't care. They, he just wants to retrieve. But you know what? More than anything, Chad, he wants to please me, mm-hmm. and that's a really big part of it. That's an unbelievable way to end it. Their willingness to please. Could you imagine if we had the wherewithal? Skip, talk to me about this and take us out. Could you imagine if your employees or your crew, when you poke them in the morning, even at duck camp, you know, like it's the fifth day of the duck camp and you poke your buddy, it's hard to get out of bed. Have you ever seen a lab like give you that look like, are you really trying to wake me up? They can go from the deepest sleep and be ready to rock within a matter of a millisecond. There's not a lot of animals like this on earth. Even a lion has to wake up and wipe the gook out of his eyes. That cat stuff that cats get in their eyes. A lab is ready to freaking roll, right? Skip Knowles. Oh, I love it. Every morning, um, Lydia's laying in her inside kennel and she's curled up like a little wolf in the tightest corner she can get in. And she sees me walk in the office and she'll just, she's five years old now. And she just give me the one eye. Just roll one eye open and check me out. Is he going in the office or is he going to open the sliding glass door and grab a bumper? And, and then the tail starts to go thump, 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 and boom, they're still alive. Chad, you're not going to make me tell the old joke about lock your car and your lover in the trunk of a car and only one will be glad to do. I'm not going there. That's where that was going, though. But um, we get so caught up in the pageantry and, and nowadays a competition of running dogs and training dogs. And, and we, we tend to forget they're an important conservation tool. They're going to get those ducks that you would otherwise lose. 
And that's very important, but I'll leave it with this. I think um, dog people are healthier people. I think they offer us a mental health. I'll give you, I'll give you a short, funny story to illustrate that. And, and then I'll shut up. I have a, like 25 relatives, about half of them, small children in this one small town over on the Kansas border. And we go over there for Thanksgiving. And you can imagine the noise level. And after day two, it starts to get to me. And there's a stretch of river near there that's pretty terrible overhunted public land. Um, all the birds seem to stick to the reservoirs and don't hit the river very much. Um, and there's, it's just a place where we always bump into someone. But I will uh, duck out there with Luna and my waders and a gun in my hand, knowing we're not gonna probably get anything, probably not even see anything. Sometimes we screw up and, and whack a goose or something, but mostly it's just getting out there with her and walking that river and leaving the madhouse for a little while. I'll stretch it out. I'll always leave as early as I can before dark and stretch it out until the magic hour when I get to watch the sunset and everything. Cut in and out of the river with her. Look at all the animal tracks and know, it's not like my normal hunts with guys like you where I know we're going to rain, bring the heavens down. This is just a mental health thing with me and my dog, and there's a bond there. And I love it oh so much. Now I can go back and deal with my huge family again. <laughs> <laughs> one last anecdote. Things still happen. Uh, one time we were walking out. We're almost to the truck. And Lena sees the biggest bird that she's ever seen. There's a wild turkey there. And then there's another one. And she's looking at me like, what the heck is that, man? What, what, what is that? It's a big, is it a bird, Dad? Are you going to shoot it? Are you going to shoot it? And I'm like, and I, I gave her, I just released her. I'm like, uh, I called her name because I wanted to see her reaction when she ran up on it. And what I didn't see, it was there was about 55 wild turkeys, about two acres of wild turkeys. <laughs> and they all took off at once. And you know the wing beats and the noise at close range of turkeys, just to see her reaction and her confusion. It absolutely is a sweet memory I'll cherish and has nothing to do with shooting a bird. You know, it's, it's mental health for us, man. I agree a hundred percent. I know Pete Fisher agrees. I think this has been a great conversation. It's, it's, it's the biggest part of the hunt. A lot of people say, I won't hunt if I don't have my dog on me. You heard me ask Kyle Broussard at Gator Tail Motors. Would you hunt if you didn't have your boat? He said, yeah, sometimes I do, but I don't hunt without my kids and my dog. And it's how it is. They become such an intricate part of this unbelievable culture, this privilege of being a hunter. It's a privilege to be a dog owner that sometimes we take for granted. Ah, we don't need to train today. Ah, they don't need, we don't need to care about their security. They're fine without us. They're always in a good mood. Well, it's our responsibility to make sure that nothing happens. We got to make sure that we take care of the little pieces of the puzzle to make sure that the big pieces come together. We never can take these awesome machines, these Labradors, these duck dogs, these hunting dogs, sporting dogs for granted. And with the product that is showcased in the Wildfowl Giant Gear issue for the 2021-22 season, we have no excuses. We do live in the golden age of hunting right now. There might have been a bad hatch this year, last year. We have a lot of birds. We have a lot of conservation efforts. We have the best clothing in the world, the best apparel, the best technology, the best guns ever made, the best ammo ever made. We're living in the golden age of hunting and the golden age of dogs. We don't have an excuse not to own a great dog or know what a great bloodline is or a great breeding program or a great kennel or a great product, a training collar, a kennel, a, a, a lay down, a, a hide a hut, um, anything that goes, the food today for dogs, the, the science and research that goes into dog foods like you can do, but we don't have an excuse not to treat them like they're kings and queens. Okay. We don't have to let them sit at the table. We don't even have to let him ride in the truck anymore because Pete Fisher might yell at us if he sees it. I don't want this, but Pete, 
Thank you so much for being here. I'm more jacked up right now at 46 years old for duck season to get here to be with Axel and Duff and Slash and the dogs that we get to meet along the way. I can't wait to see you at some events, at some hunt camps. Skip, you are the man. Pete, thank you. Do you have any closing words? And we will leave this unbelievable podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Chad and 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 Skip. Uh, it was it was always lots of good information, and I enjoy being on. Um, you know, the the uh, you guys touched on this a little bit earlier about uh, you know about a hobby, and uh, and uh, my hobby now it started out as a hobby. It was training dogs and turned into profession for thirty some years, and I think I did pretty well at it. And uh, but it's still my hobby, and uh, uh, one of the things I always tell to tell people and they say so you really like training dogs and i say yeah just remember there's a fine line between a man's hobby and mental illness and so i love to train dogs i got a lot of fun doing that i love to shoot sporting plays yet don't get enough time to do that it seems like but i think all of us need to take uh working with our dog and, and turn it into our hobby and we're, we're going to get a dog that's much more enjoyable and controllable to have at home and in the field very well said pete fisher i i truly agree with that and we can all be guilty of those lazy days where we feel like they're there. We don't have enough time in the day to put into our dog. There's a lot of ways to get it done. That's why I love great training services, kennels, mossy pond, wild acre in Minnesota. You're what you do, Pete, the manufacturers, the passion, the love. It's, it's the day of the dog. It's the dog day afternoon. Wasn't that an Al Pacino movie? Skip Knowles. You are a cinema, a classic cinema freak. I know your favorite movie is probably revenge of the nerds, maybe 16 candles, Anthony, (laughs) Michael Hall trying to, you know, he was the geek and he was trying to become the hero at the high school. I know exactly what you love skip, but I do know that when it comes to dogs, you are a fan. This was a great conversation. Skip Knowles. This is why you put this book out to drive conversation stories, such as we just learned from Mr. Pete Fisher, the 2021, 22 wildfowl giant gear issue, 196 pages of pure skip Knowles and crew genius skip. Take us out. Thank you very much for another awesome gear issue thank you both for being here today we will let the great the one and only the powerful skip Knowles ride us out of this podcast i don't know why you're grossly overstating every everyone knows journalists are journalists you know, a little <laughs> we know a little about everything and a lot about nothing and, and that's why it's so nice to talk to someone like pete and learn so much it's it's, an incredible, it's humbling and at the same time you got me all pumped up to to get back out and treat um, my dog training more as a hobby and a mental health benefit for me rather than something I have to do, something I have to fit in. And uh, that's just a great attitude and a, a great thing to end on. Pete, I really love getting to know you. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing the knowledge, man. Tom, thank you. Jake. Thank you. Tom, Jake, hit that button. This song is called My Foul Life. The band is called 2AM Logic. Thank you all for listening. Foul